Oh, thank you, worship team, for leading us in quiet song. It's good to be here with you and online as well and see some familiar faces. Um, it's been a long time. I said this last week, but it's great to be able to see some of you uh, here in person. We're continuing on in our sermon series. As someone pointed out, it's been a long time in the Minor Prophets, and that's okay. Um, but next week, Pastor Matt's going to be finishing us off, so I'm expecting a big bang and uh, something <laughs> like amazing. Um, I'm joking, just preach the Word of God, but you know, just saying. Um, so we're going to be in Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3 this morning as we continue on in our sermon series. Let me ask you this question first, though. As we get into this, have you ever spoken a hard word against someone? I have, a few times. I'm a father, so it's guaranteed to have done it at least three times. We uh, all have, see, someone laughed. May I say on a side note, it's a lot easier to make jokes when there's people to respond than when you're preaching (laughs) just to the camera. See, there we go. We've all spoken a harsh word, you know, and sometimes they deserved it and sometimes they don't. But let me ask you another follow-up question. Have you ever said a harsh word to God? Is that ever something that's come through out of your mouth? Have you ever wondered what it would look like if you are lying to yourself and you haven't? See, that's what we're going to see here in Malachi chapter 3. In these last few verses, we're going to be starting off in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And we will see some harsh words that the people, the Judites, have said to God. But let's recap some of the conversation that has happened so far in Malachi. Because it's easy to forget. So in chapter 3 of verse 13, God comes and he says to the people, You have spoken harshly to me. And we kind of go, Really, have you? Let's recap. Verse 2 of chapter 1. God said, I love you. You remember what the people's response was? Yeah, right. How? Right? Verse 6. God said, you are not showing me the proper respect I deserve as your father. They said, what's the problem? We still bring you sacrifices. God said, be faithful in your marriage relationships in chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. And they replied with, it doesn't matter how we live our personal lives. In verse 17 of chapter 2, God told them what good and evil look like and instructed them to pursue justice. And their answer was, where is the God of justice? There's no difference between those who do what is right and those who are evil. You know, in, in, in just last week, in chapter 3, verses uh, 10, it said, God said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that the priests and the Levites can be provided for and the poor fed. Test me and see if I will not bless your obedience in this. And they said, what is the use of such obedience? Serving God doesn't pay off. Evildoers are better off than we are. People mock God and get away with it all the time. So why should I give generously? 
And that brings us to Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, which says this. The word of the Lord says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in the morning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him. And those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this chance to open your word and to continue to worship you. So Lord, I pray that you would indeed use this time to glorify and to magnify your name. And I can't do this on my own. So Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would help me to preach the sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name and joy to the people and salvation to the lost. And amen. Hard words to God. Serving God is pointless. That's what we see in verses 13 to 15. God comes along and he says, you're, you're saying these harsh words to me. Your words have been hard against me. This is more than just rude or inconsiderate language. The, the Judites are not just dishonoring God with how they talk, but they are forcefully using a cynical theology. They're coming along and saying, God is just simply not good. So you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to be cynical? Because it's something that I've been reminded of. Actually, This past week I was out because patios are open. So I went out for, for dinner with somebody, and he reminded me of how he's been praying for my cynical attitude. And I went, oh yeah, I got one of those. It's a reminder. So what does it mean to be cynical? And cynical is, is essentially saying that people are motivated by their self-interest. They're distrustful of human sincerity and integrity. But when we apply that attitude of cynicism to God, we become a cynical theology. We begin to doubt who God is and what he has done. Cynicism is believing that God doesn't or won't do anything. And let me, as a side note, say there's a big difference between cynicism and laments. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. It teaches us how to lament. There's songs in Psalms that talk us, tell us and teach us how to lament and to pour out to God. The difference between being cynical and lamenting is this. Lamenting means and says that God is still good and in control. He is sovereign. He is good. And he has given me so much already. But God, I still don't get what's going on. Cynical says... Life sucks, therefore God won't do anything good. It doubts the very goodness of who God is. 
And that's what the people of God are getting into. So in verse 14, it comes out and he says, it is vain to serve God. These are the hard words that are being spoken. The people's cynicism is so deep and ingrained into their hearts that they no longer see any good at all in serving God and who he is. So they come along and they say, God, what is the point? This is hard. It's too hard. Life is too hard. What profit of our keeping his charge, they say. God, there's no point in obeying. They look like they are having a lot more fun than I am. So there's just no point. Or as he continues, says, or walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts. God, there is no point in giving up the joys of this world for serving you, they say. Verse 15 Now, they say, we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. These people who are prospering act as though you are not even there. They, with their actions, say that there is no God and he is not good. So let me ask you again, have you ever said harsh words to God? Perhaps you have vented them out loudly in a scream or muttered them under your breath or in your heart. You have said, serving God is useless. He doesn't really care about me or what I do. I've tried so hard to be a good person and life isn't working out for me. I've obeyed all the rules and missed out on all the fun that those who don't follow God's law are enjoying. And where has this God in me? I've worked diligently. I've been honest, but I'm struggling in my classes. I'm struggling in my career, while others who are bent, who have bent the rules or outright cheated have done much better than me. I've pursued sexual purity in my relationships, but I'm still single, while others who have been less faithful have an engagement ring and a wedding date. I've read my Bible and I invested myself in seeking God. And meanwhile, those who have done none of these things are ahead of me in all the areas of life that really count. I'm sick and tired of it all. I'm almost ready to give up on this religious stuff. Ever been there? These are the hard words that the people are saying to God. And I felt all of them, as much as I'm sure many of you have. I have cried those tears. But there's something that's beginning to shape here as God begins to confront the cynical attitude of these people. What is seen is not how things will end. This momentary time will end. There is a distinction that is beginning to be drawn between those who fear God and those who do not fear God. The blessings of fearing God and the the curse of not following God and fearing God will become evidence, will become so evident. And we cry out to God, to God who hears, and he doesn't just leave it there with just hearing. He points our eyes again in this passage of an eternal hope that we have to keep our eyes on in a world that is so hard. Whatever it may be, a child who's not following God 
who's fallen away, losing our jobs, sickness, death, whatever it may be. So in verses 16 to 19, we see that God is watching. And not only that, there is a book of remembrance that is written. There are two groups of people in this passage, and Malachi has encouraging words for the second group and not so encouraging words for the next. In verse 16, we see those who repent fear God. As it says, then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. This is the opposite of those who were speaking harshly in the previous passage. There's two distinct groups of people that are beginning to develop. These aren't the same people. They're two different ones. This is the opposite. These are the people that in spite of their circumstances continue to praise God because they keep their eyes on the very character of who he is and what he has done for them in the past. Knowing that God has kept his promises and will continue to keep his promises because he is a covenant-keeping God. This is the first time that Malachi has seen a, a positive response to his preaching. Imagine that. Right? Thank God I'm not there. But, you know, he's preached this whole sermon. This isn't just one sermon, right? This is multiple oracles that have given over time. And none of them have been a positive response. This is the first time. And it's at the end. Instead of a a second rebuttal from the people, a group in the community talk with each other about this. This second group, they respond in something very different. Not a rebuttal to God's uh, um, rebuke, but a simple act of repentance. And the outcome is this. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And God's response to their words was to hear them. See, God's response to their, to their repentance is that he hears them. And he begins to, to write this book, as it says later on, and a book of remembrance was written before him. You know, we see different references of a book in other places in the Old Testament. And when we see it, it talks about a record of those who belong to him. Notice that those who belong to him, it is not a default to be Jewish, there's a distinguishing mark. Those who fear God and those who don't fear him. And in that fearing, or the lack of fear, it does come out in their actions and how they interact. It doesn't mean that the people, the second group of people, never cried out to God with lament, saying, God, why is this so hard? but they understood who God is in the context of what he has done for him. But God writes a book of remembrance of them, a list uh, of those who publicly have committed to God. And he continues on, and this list is made up of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. The names that are in this book are those who fear and esteem him. Fear is this reverence and devotion to who God is, which is the basis of a relationship with him. And then they esteemed him, thinking of God's fame and and reputation above my own comforts. 
They elevated his name. This is the opposite of the complaining of the futility of serving their God. So what is the outcome of these people that feared and esteemed God? And he wrote down in this book of remembrance, we see all the way down in verse 17 as it continues on, they shall be mine, says the In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. They are mine. Like, that's amazing, isn't it? Here are these people, and in their response to God's rebuke, they repent, and God's response to them is what? They are mine. The creator of the universe, king of kings, lord of lords, says to these people who don't deserve it, that's already been evident, you're mine. And it's an amazing thing. And in that day, when I make up my treasured possession, you know, this is an amazing thing because it's talking about We understand, we've talked about this in the previous passage, our king, our lord of lords, the creator of the universe, he already owns everything. So when we give in tithes, we're not giving back to him, he already owns it. We're giving as an act of worship out of the generosity he has shown us through his son Jesus Christ. Which is why in the New Testament there's not a percentage that's given, it's said to give out of the generosity of your own heart. But God who owns everything, this is like talking about the private property of the king who already owns everything. He owns everything. He owns all the hills and all the cattle and all the hills, as Psalm says about our God. But these are his personal prized possessions, the ones that are like on the mantle or something over the fireplace where when he has people who come over to visit, he shows them, look at these amazing things that I have, these possessions that are mine. And this is what is described of his people. Not just stuff, treasured possessions. It's a hard thing for me to understand because I struggle a lot with a legalistic mentality. But here God uses his word of treasured possessions to describe who I am in Christ. In Christ, you are a treasured possession. So the God-fearers will think that the complaints that are found in verses 14 to 15 have no grounds, and God will act to make it evident, make the evident distinction between those who fear God and those who don't. Think back to verse 16. Unbelievers think, these these people who do not fear God think serving God is worthless. And God-fearers may be tempted to think the same way when times get hard, but God sees two different groups of people. Those who fear the Lord are his treasured possession because God knows them. Their final destiny is peace. But the, dis- the destiny of the wicked is to be stubble for the fire, as Pastor Matt will talk about next week. When God finally acts, the difference between the righteous and the wicked will be clear to everyone. But here's the problem, right? When we're looking at this list, We are all sinners, 
every single last one of us? We've all thought at some point or another these words. How is it even possible to have a different destiny for two groups of people when there really is only one group of people of sinners? See, last week we saw that the road to reconciliation with God was repentance, and here it is again. He spares us who aren't by nature his children. He gives us status of sons and daughters of God. How is this even possible? Because he gave his son as a propitiation for you and for me so that I can come before the holy God and call him not just God, but Father. This is the great exchange. He got what we deserve. Jesus got what we deserve so that we can get what we don't deserve. Jesus is the door that is open for all who repent to receive healing through his suffering. Jesus took our punishment. He entered into the oven of God's wrath for our iniquity. He was crushed underfoot for our restoration. He is the son of whom the father did not show compassion, even though he served him faithfully so that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters through the blood of Jesus Christ. No one who serves God loses. No one. Just as no one who ultimately tests God escapes. Those who mock the gospel will go to utter destruction, but those who trust in the Lord receive eternal life and wholeness in Christ. Do you hear God's response to the repentance of his people? He promises something so wonderful. They are mine, my treasured possession. So what makes serving God worth it? If you've read any sort of church history, especially the missionaries, they had a rough go. They had a hard So what kept them going? What makes it worthwhile? What makes obeying him worth it? What makes giving up these momentary joys worth it? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what he has done for you. If you are in Christ, you have a hope that goes beyond all imagination. In Christ, you have a tender friend, an advocate, someone who is able to sympathize. In Christ, you have someone who deals gently with you, who is for you. In Christ, you are the treasured possession of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In Christ, you will never be cast out. In Christ, if you are in Christ you will have him with you to the outermost. See, the grammar here is pointing to a future promise that will happen, that we will talk about even next week. So keep your eyes on him who is the author and the finisher of your faith. So the answer to this is what makes it so worth it? It's Jesus. And when we take our eyes off of him, that's when we begin to get tempted to enter into that cynicism. Again, I did not say you can't lament. The Bible encourages it. But even in lamenting, keep your eyes on Christ. 
in verse 18, then once more you shall see the, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. God will act to make evident the distinction between those who are God-fearers and those who are not, between the ones who are serving him and the ones who are self-serving. God will make it distinct. And it may not look like it now, but it will happen. In Christ, you have a hope. Not in Christ, this is all you get. This is it. This is as good as it gets. There is a distinction. There is a line that is being drawn. So I plead with you, if you haven't submitted to the Lordship of Christ in your life, if you are unwilling to serve the God that gives you uh, so much hope, if you are willing to do that, repent and confess, turn from your sin and turn to the one who paid it all. So how will this distinction be made? By the one who serves God and the one who doesn't serve him. You know, Jesus talks about this similarly in Luke chapter 6. It says, For no good fruit bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruits. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the, a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasures produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. See, in this promise that God makes, God is pointing to the value and benefit of serving him. And the distinction between the righteous and the wicked are not yet fully realized. We do live in the land of in-between. So what? Those who fear God are set apart as his treasured possession. So three things to remember from this passage. No one serves God and loses. Not one. Just as no one who ultimately tests God can escape him. Those who mock the gospel will go to, the utter, will go to utter destruction, but those who trust in the Lord will receive eternal life and wholeness in Christ. The second one is this. Those who fear the Lord are his treasured possession. Don't jump over that. In Christ, that is who you are. And notice this, that I keep saying in Christ. This isn't everyone. Just as much as everyone in the world is not a child of God, in Christ, you are a treasured possession. The third is, you will face hardships. Keep your eyes on the hope that is through Jesus Christ. And this is why we need one another. This is why there's no such thing as lone wolf in the, in, in the Christian faith. This is why God not only calls you to himself, but calls you into a church so that we can encourage one another and, and point each other back to the word of God and say, see, look, this is who he is. This is what he's done for you. In the midst of your suffering, this is who he still is and will always will be. Because as we've learned before in the previous passage, he does not change. Ian Hamilton is a theologian, a writer. He says it this way. God does not hide from us the reality of the kingdom life in a fallen world. But nor does he hide from us the privilege of following in the master's steps and the grace he promises to support and strengthen us in the, in the tension. 
In fact, the deepest truth about every Christian is that we are more than conquerors. We have been caught up in Christ's triumphal procession and are being led to glory by our all-conquering Savior and King. It may not feel like it at times. There are days when it seems as triumph simply, uh, it, it seems a triumph simply to get through the day. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a triumph to get through a day, a triumph of God's grace to us in Christ. The world, the flesh, and the devil are raging against you, but your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, is for you and will never fail you. He will carry you through day by day. Cast yourself and all of your burdens on the Lord because he cares for you. Soon enough, we shall be together with the Lord. This life is a momentary blip. Keep your eyes on Christ. The person who fears God must embrace a hopeful realism. This is a perspective that embraces the dual realities of contemporary evil and redemption that is to come. It lives in the tension of a groaning creation and its eminent restoration. A hopeful realist claims with joy that God will do something and that it is just around the corner. If we truly embrace the biblical teachings that new creation is in the works and on the way, then a daring hopefulness will infuse our experience of a daily reality. Even when, even when that reality is steeped in the broken mess of this present world. Kicking and screaming in this final hour. So I pray, I've been praying this all week and I'm praying it for you too. God help me to see the joy of serving you. Help me to see the hope that I have through your son Jesus Christ. That when life gets hard, because it will. Kids, life gets hard. It will get hard. Keep your eyes on Christ. One of the, I was reading this last uh, two, yesterday. I'm reading a great book right now, and I can't encourage you to get it. Like, I, enough. I can't encourage you to get it enough. Yes. <laughs> it is a fantastic book. Hear me. Fantastic. It is a fantastic book. I can't, I've been reading it. It's so, it's short, amazingly short chapters and it's just taking me a long time to read it through because it just, it's just so good. It's called Gentle and Lowly. The Heart of Christ for Sufferers and Sinners. Isn't that not all of us? And just being reminded of Christ's heart for me. In Christ, this is Christ's heart for me, it is humbling and amazing. But in there, he, the author uh, is quoting a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, which he preached just to children. Okay? Uh, talk to my wife about her opinions on kids' ministry with Jonathan Edwards. And it was, it was amazing. Because his big idea was this to the kids as they were sitting there, ages 6 to 14, sitting in a sermon. He said, he put an emphasis on making sure that these kids saw the beauty of Christ. Because how else do we get through this world? 
without knowing the beauty of Christ and what he has done for us. God, help me to see the Help me to see the joy of serving you. Help me to see the hope that I have through your Son, Jesus Christ. Those who fear God are set apart as his treasured possession. And if you really want to know what it means to be a treasured possession of God, pick up that book, Gentle and Lowly, and be reminded of what Christ's heart is for you, O sinner and sufferer. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for the reminder that even in this world, life gets hard. So God, I pray for myself, I pray for all of us here and who are watching, Lord, I pray that you would remind us through your spirit as we spend time in your word of the joy of serving you, that you would remind us once again of what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. When we think we can't go on anymore, Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would remind us of those things. But I also pray, God, I I praise you that we are in a church family that allows us to do this. So God, I pray that you'd be glorified and honored. And amen.